The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn and follow as I go to Luke 19 today, continuing our studies in Luke. Now moving into the last week of Jesus' life. If you were feeling that spring is really on the way and winter has fled, I'm trying to advance that thought because it will seem like Palm Sunday with what I'm reading here, which of course doesn't arrive till April 1st. But we are looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as Luke conveys it. And we'll be looking at other events of the Passion Week over the next weeks leading up to Easter. Listen to God's Word, reading from the English Standard Version, Luke 19, 28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you. Where, on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. One asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as it had been told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's holy word. If you're a younger person, perhaps the novels of James Michener are not known to you, but many adults remember Michener's series of big blockbuster novels that came from the, I guess, 1970s through the 90s or so. They were always huge books, usually tracing a wide pattern of history. 
One of them I recall reading a long time ago was called The Source, and it ends up being almost a comprehensive history of the land of Palestine beginning in the Stone Age to the 20th century. And the device, the literary device that the author used was quite clever. He had archaeologists at the beginning digging at what they would call a tell, which in archaeological terms is a place where more than one community over the centuries has actually been layered upon another. And these archaeologists were digging down through the tell. They choose a core area and go down. And as they uncovered layer by layer from more modern to less to less to very ancient, the artifacts that they found were brought out, studied, and each in turn told a story that spun off into many chapters from a flint spear point, a stone idol, a golden candelabra, a pot, or whatever. You learned of the vast history that this place had seen. So the artifacts of the ground, the mute objects that people used in their lives, had a voice. Well, in Luke 19.40, as Jesus came down the Mount of Olives approaching Jerusalem, we see a wonderful response from him to this situation when his disciples cried out, using language of the Psalms, blessed is the king coming in the Lord's name. There were, of course, critics present, as there always were, who were startled. They recognized what was being said as things that should have been said to Messiah. And so they were quick with a sharp rebuke. Tell your disciples to not say such things. But then Jesus spoke these great words in 1940 of Luke. I tell you, if they were quiet about me, the very stones of the earth would have to cry out. In other words, if human beings will not recognize God's Son as Lord, then mute nature could be his orchestra to speak his praise. The mountains that were put in place with him as their co-creator, the tectonic plates of the earth that moved continents into position, the ancient hills knew more in some ways than hard-hearted and foolish men were willing to declare. This has an Old Testament background, as you might expect, in Habakkuk, obscure prophet of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 1, there's a place where a treacherous, unjust ruler was told by the prophet, the very stones of your house cry out against you, and the beams of your woodwork echo with judgment. Probably Jesus was speaking in that same idiom. He knew that stones don't have a language. He didn't expect a stone to break into speech. But the truth that he was saying with that metaphor was a powerful one. He was saying there are some things that are so fundamental, they're so elemental to the world itself and and the way things are organized and moving by God's direction, that if men don't see them, creation sees them. Because this king, Jesus, who could have been proclaimed by stones, as Jesus said, is the one whose emblem, whose royal insignia, you could easily say, was imprinted on the fossils and the granite of the earth. Now, Romans 1, of course, has that same truth, telling us in Paul's words that what may be known about God is plain and evident even from 
the very creation itself. That's the first platform of Paul's argument in the great epistle of Romans. He starts out saying, men know me. They don't have any excuse for not at least knowing that there should be a creator. And they're responsible to follow that knowledge where it leads them. But as Paul argued, that if men would refuse that knowledge, suppress it, as he said, suppress the truth, then they would become responsible for whatever happens to them as they went on from bad to worse to worse. There's a sense here in which Jesus, in this figure of speech, is saying, look, the nature of creation itself could tell you that I deserve the praise for the God who sent me into this world. And if you don't know it, you want to listen to nature. Well, of course, we're indulging a fancy or a figure of speech, but if the stones could speak, I'd like to ask what they might say and show you how I think this passage answers that. In the first place, the stones might tell us this, that all prophecy is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. All prophecy is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. And we have an instance of it here in verses 30 to 35, this little arrangement that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, a foal, a a young animal that had not yet been used for anyone to ride it or as a beast of burden. There was a prophecy being fulfilled. Zechariah 9.9 says, Behold, the king comes, just and bearing salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey's foal. Now, I've actually had discussion with this passage. I remember once talking with a student who who said, well, how can you call that fulfillment of a prophecy when Jesus clearly kind of set it up, you might say? Uh, He said, go get this foal, and in a sense was putting himself in a position to fulfill the prophecy. No denial of that. And yet, there are interesting things here. Some think that Jesus probably arranged with the owner of the animal and said somebody's going to come by and ask for them, and they'll say this. Others would say, and I tend to side with these others, that would say, no, he didn't necessarily arrange it with the owner, but he knew that when it was told to that owner, the Lord has need of it, the owner would respond and would let his animal be taken. Why didn't Jesus come on a horse, on a great stallion? You know, you you picture the, the hero arriving on even an animal that has great regal bearing about it. Well, the interesting thing to know is that horses didn't even have their appearance in the land of the Bible until the time of Solomon. Solomon, with his wealth, was able to send to other kingdoms that had horses and and bring them in. And the horse was associated with war. It was a war animal. You went into battle on a horse. Interestingly, though, there's a strong Old Testament tradition that has the lowly donkey... And probably the animal, by the way, that Mary, Joseph, would have had going to Bethlehem, but we don't know that for sure, although it's traditionally thought that's the case. But a horse, you would think, well, here comes a warrior. Here comes a champion. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, priests and ambassadors and uh, princes, even royalty, rode on donkeys. It was an animal of peace. And when that animal was ridden, it was a sign that the one on it came in peace. Now, 
I'm not very troubled by the idea that someone says, yes, Jesus said, go get this donkey's colt, and thereby a prophecy was fulfilled, because even in this small incident, he didn't, didn't and couldn't have set the whole thing up. You know, I can't picture Peter and John sort of going down the side of the road, handing out scripts and saying, hey, when he comes, here's what you need to say, everybody, and not my account, hail to the king. No. It, it's very clear that this was a spontaneous gen- demonstration. And in what was said, the words of Psalm 118. Now, perhaps his closest disciples began to say it, but others picked it up and set it along the road as robes were laid down and palm branches were waved and Jesus made this ride to enter Jerusalem for that important last week of his life. Just branching off that idea of this as a fulfillment, You know, this may not be one of the most impressive fulfillments of prophecy that you could possibly think of, but it was a trigger to many others. Just cast your mind ahead to the next days leading to the cross and think about the many things that the Bible predicted which were going to happen in those days. The idea of of a friend becoming his betrayer, one who ate bread with him, who would rise up and, and betray him, predicted the idea of his thirst upon the cross and being given sour vinegar wine to drink, predicted. His clothing taken and gambled for and divided up, predicted. The derision of the onlookers shouting at him, predicted. The turning away of his father from him, who could not look on favor on the sin bearer, predicted. And many more. His burial in a rich man's tomb, things that Jesus had no ability to manipulate or somehow cunningly say, well, I will set this up as a big theatrical show so people will think I'm the Messiah. You don't have the ability to get soldiers to gamble for your clothing when you're helplessly pinned on a cross. And many other things that were happening here brought prophecy together. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, many obscure references as well. And I would say to you, if, if people could take away many of the other supports that convince me of the divinity and the lordship of Christ, they would still have the ponderous difficulty of somehow trying to remove the mountainous bulk of prophetic evidence coming true around Christ, even in this last week, let alone things from his birth onward. But just here in this week, amazing things that God brought to pass. And he brought them to pass on a very public stage. That's another thing to notice under this first point. And you see how contrary that was to the way Jesus operated before this? You could read of the many different times, especially early in his ministry, he would work a miracle, and then he would say, now don't tell people about this. Of course, they all went and told about it, but he told them not to. Or he would be drawn into something, and and the people were all clamoring for him, and he would go somewhere else. Or they were trying to proclaim him their king, and he made a fast retreat out the back door from that place. He didn't want the public notice for a good share of his ministry. In fact, he moved away from it. But now we see him moving directly into it. You know, this isn't some incognito little entrance into the capital city for this Passover week. It's the grandest red carpet display he could have chosen. He drew attention to himself, hostile attention. This rebuke your disciples was just the tip of the iceberg of the hostility 
that was against him because of these things going on in the public arena. Well, it was moving on to this big stage because, of course, it was time for Jesus to die. Not only was prophecy coming to a climax, but the people had to see so that it would be in their remembrance after when the gospel was preached that it was publicly that he entered Jerusalem. Publicly, he taught in the temple courts all during that week. Publicly, he was taken off to the high priest's house and then the palace of Pilate, which was the most public forum in the city. Publicly, he was flogged. Publicly, he was crucified, stripped, put on that cross where everyone could see him. And then publicly, too, came the wonderful evidence on Sunday morning as the news filtered out. He's risen. He's risen. He's alive. And he showed himself publicly to many, many witnesses. You know, in in light of Luke's word here, or the words of Jesus, really, that are used about the stones speaking, stones would have to conclude, if they had rational minds, that men were idiots who would not deal with the plain evidence of accumulated prophecy and the public evidence of all the things he did and taught and that were enacted around him to draw the conclusion that this is God's Christ, the Lord. Stones can figure that out. Well, secondly, if men don't do so, you could say this. Stones would testify to Christ's powerful rule as a king. Look back at verse 31 for a moment, and it's interesting, this phrase, uh, the disciples wanted to know, well, how are we going to pull off this borrowing of a, of a donkey? You know, maybe the owner's going to object. Naturally, you'd think that. And, and that's why I don't think it was a prearrangement, because twice Jesus emphasizes that you need to say this phrase, the Lord needs it. When he hears you say, the Lord needs it, it will be given. Now, what's such a big deal about that? Well, it is really a very big deal because in this entire Gospel of Luke, here we are in the 19th chapter, at no point previous to this in the Gospel here has Jesus called himself the L-O-R-D, capital letters, Lord, that was the clear Old Testament title of God himself. This wasn't just the master or the man who leads us. This was the Old Testament title of God, which Jesus was taking upon himself for the first time. What, after all, is the first Christian creed? You learn about this. We tell our our communicant classes, our new member classes, the oldest and simplest, easiest Christian creed is four words. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. If you can confess that with understanding from your heart, you are a Christian. You know, it's real easy to become a Muslim. What is it you say there? They just have a phrase. If you can stand up, and I think you have to say it three times. I don't know how it is. It goes, God is one and Muhammad is his prophet or something like that. Something that's never going to come out of my mouth. But uh, you say that three times and you're a Muslim. That's all there is to it. That's your initiation. You're in. Well, if a Christian says and means from the depth of his faith Jesus Christ is Lord. 
he's saying a tremendous thing. He's saying, really, that, of course, he was God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this about him. By Christ were all things created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And then it goes on, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a tremendous claim that is in Colossians 1. Christ is the Lord. He is God the creator, God the ruler, God the supreme authority. But maybe you would read a passage like this and see him riding into Jerusalem with this short little display and then read what happens after that. And you'd say, well, Jesus was only king for a day. A few of us are old enough to go back to the 1950s and early 60s and remember an old TV show, The Queen for a Day. Anybody here remember The Queen for a Day? Yeah, a few. Thanks for being an old person. <laughs> Housewife would come in and be honored, and she'd get a free dryer and a vacuum cleaner, and she was the queen for a day wearing the crown. Well, that's what Jesus seemed like here. Brief parade, then it's over. And in fact, in, in a matter of days, he'd be in Pilate's palace. And you remember the sneering sarcasm of Pilate when he said, so, you're a king, huh? Some king you look like. And his being a king, you remember, was made an object of derision. The soldiers put those thorns on him and pressed them down on him and laughed at him and said, oh, here, take your scepter, king. As they jeered at him. Well, he may have been the king with history's shortest parade, but he was the monarch with history's grandest realm and greatest power under his control. He's strong, he's wise, he's omnipotent. And listen, he doesn't just rule creation, as Colossians 1 said, he rules us, he rules over our lives. We cannot claim that creed of a Christian and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and then go out on Tuesday when the marriage is coming apart at the seams, or the job is turning sour and you think you're going to get laid off, or, or some real problem arises in your life, or your great disappointment, or your health gives out, or you get a cancer verdict, or, and then you say, whoa, what happened to that king, Jesus, who was supposed to be ruling in my life? He still rules. He never stops ruling. He never abdicates his throne because of circumstances you encounter. And our calling is to call him Lord and follow him and trust him as a Lord when things are going wrong and things are going against us. The stones know that. And yet we need to learn it. I think of a line in the great hymn, Be Still My Soul, one of my very favorite hymns that has a line in it that says, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. If nature knows it, why don't we know it when we're awaiting surgery or the verdict has gone against us or the joblessness goes on week after week and month after month? He rules us and he rules perfectly. Now finally, stones know all about Christ's fulfillment of prophecy and about his rule. But thirdly, they could tell us this, and it's in the passage. 
They could tell us about God's unique peace found in Christ alone. There's several references here to that. You may remember, of course, when Jesus was born, angels declared, peace on earth among men with whom God is pleased. There's such a symmetry in the gospel. Now he's coming to the end of his life, and you hear the cry that was made to him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Sounds a lot like the initial thing, right? Back in Bethlehem. And yet that, as the parade ended and as Jesus was left perhaps with just his disciples, he looked out at that city spread out before him. I just talked to one of our members who's going to Israel, has never seen Jerusalem. I said, oh, what a great, I said, I would love to go with you again and see Jerusalem again. We can picture if you've been there right where he was on the Mount of Olives, you could see the whole city spread out in front of you. And he looked at that city as a representation of the whole covenant nation of Israel and Judah, God's nation from the Old Testament, and he wept. He wept over the city. Would that you would have known the things that would make for your peace. But you won't have it. You've turned it away century after century. You've turned away God's messengers. You've killed his prophets. You wouldn't have it. And now... Your destiny is basically sealed. And Jesus spoke in terminology that is so amazing because 40 years after he said this, one generation, one lifetime of that day, 40 years in AD 70, Emperor Vespasian sent his best general, Titus, and said, finish off those pesky Jews. And Titus came in and ringed that city with barricades, starved them out, and then came in with his soldiers and took that city apart. Stone by stone, the temple no longer existed. The gold plating was gone. All the glory was gone. Not one stone was left standing on another, and Jesus predicted it, just as he said it would be. You know, stones of the ground and the earth itself must know a lot about peace because they never have any. Since man is always trampling on the ground and running over the stones and blasting them with our bombs and our tanks and our missiles as we war against one another, Paul had that wonderful word in Romans 8 when he said, creation itself groans in travail with the sins of mankind. Creation's waiting for the day of peace. But the Messiah is going to bring that peace. Jesus came on a gentle donkey with the intent of waging peace, but it wouldn't be some phony treaty that would just make the guns stop firing for a while and nations stop attacking each other. It was the kind of peace that went right down into the roots of creation. And actually Colossians, again, speaks of it. Colossians 1.20. God through Christ reconciled all things to himself, whether things in the earth or things in heaven, by making peace. The the phrase is actually waging peace through his blood shed on the cross. The lifeless stones know the architect who put them in place. And if stones could think, they would wonder among themselves 
about the human beings walking about, supposedly intelligent, who have rocks of unbelief in their head and cannot see the things that God has made so plain, so marvelous, so compelling, so undeniable that they are truths rooted in the creation itself and the way things are just as the law of gravity exists. Spiritual ignorance is not excusable. Jesus said that towards Jerusalem. Romans 1 says it's not excusable. If men will not follow the path and the evidence and the landmarks of what God has given of himself, they will be without excuse. And they will go on in their lives from one terrible decision and bad behavior to another, and in eternity will have no place to turn back. God calls people who may have a rock in place of a heart, but he's the one who breaks up rocks. He's the one who changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Don't be that person who says, I'm going to continue in my unbelief. I don't care what you say to me. I would just say to you, if if that's your determination as an unbeliever, you better stop your ears up and you better close your eyes because if you don't, it's just possible you may hear a chorus of stones declaring the truth of God. Jesus Christ is the Lord, the power of God, the Savior of the world, the King of glory. Praise be to him. Our Father, you have given us all kinds of evidences to believe things, prophecy fulfilled, nature in its beauty, how we thank you for things we're just starting to behold as the land begins to awaken. Surely it takes a determined, obstinate, rock-solid block of cement to stand against the truths of who you are. But I pray, O God, if there be one today in that situation, you would smash the stone and turn it to dust. You would awaken the dead heart with warm life and praise. You would give a song of belief and obedience to that one who stands against you. May it be for the praise of your great Son, our Savior. Amen.